Welcome. Hello. I love your cuspuck. That's cool. Did you make that? No. Did your mom make it for you? Ah. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I have a story that I want to tell you guys about a man whose name was Samuel. Samuel was a prophet and Samuel had a job from God. God told Samuel that he wanted him to go to a small village in Israel and he was supposed to anoint a man to be the next king. Do you know what the word anoint means? Have you ever heard that word before? It means, it's kind of like, oh, Miss Elsie's not going to be happy with me, but that's okay. Pastor Elsie, she can just not see this and she won't be here, so it's okay. She, uh, It's like you have a jug filled with oil, right? And come on up here, Mr. 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 Uh, you're not Davian. Mr. Adrian, come on up, please. It's like this was filled with oil and you pour it on his head. That's what anointing is. Go ahead. You can sit down now. So God said to the prophet Samuel, I want you to go to a village and I want you to go see a man named Jesse. And Jesse has a son. And I want you to go and anoint him with oil so he can be the next king over all of Israel. And Samuel said, I'm perfectly willing to do that, God. But how am I supposed to know who it is that I'm supposed to anoint? Because he has more than one son. And God said, I'll show you. So Jesse, excuse me, so Samuel came to the village and the people were like, oh, the prophet came, the prophet came. Sir, what can we do for you? He said, I have come to offer a sacrifice and I've come to have a, a meal with Jesse. So he went to Jesse's house and Jesse was so excited because the prophet Samuel had come to his house and he said, what can we do for you, sir? And he said, well, before we can eat, God has given me a special job to do. Close the doors to your house. No one but your family. And so they closed the doors and they're in the house all by themselves. And Samuel says to Jesse, I have come because I need to anoint your son with oil. And Jesse says, well, I have a lot of sons. Which one do you want? And Samuel went, I don't know. Why don't you bring him out? So they brought him out. And I want to read to you. It's really funny how it happened. It's in the book of First Samuel, because Samuel is the guy that wrote the story. I mean, the, the story's about. And it's six, it's First Samuel chapter 16. And it says, when he came, excuse me, Jesse and his sons invited him to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on the oldest son, Eliab, and he thought, surely this is the one I'm supposed to anoint. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance. Don't look at the fact that he's tall and, and strong. I have rejected him. For I don't look at human beings like other human beings do. I look, you, you human beings look on the outside. I look at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, that's his second son. And he made him stand in front of Samuel. And God said, nope. That's not 
the one. And so Samuel said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And Samuel said, nope, that, that one. And Jesse made seven of his sons come before Samuel. And Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen these. And Jesse, then Samuel turned to Jesse and he said, are, are, is this all your sons? And Jesse said, well, there's the youngest. I mean, he's out keeping the sheep. We don't really worry about him. He's just David. That's just David. And Samuel said, go and get him. Because we are not going to start this party until he gets here. And then David came in and Jesse said, you go stand in front of Samuel. So David, just a little guy. He's just a teenager. He came in. Yeah, what, what can I do for you? And this is what God said. The Lord said, arise and anoint David, for this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, the, the jug of oil, and he anointed David in front of all of his brothers and his father. And this is what's so cool. It says the spirit of God rushed upon Daniel and stayed on him from that day forward. And David became king over Israel. And it's so cool. The thing that I love about that story is Samuel thought, wow, he's the biggest one. He should be the guy that I anoint. And God's like, nope, that's not him. Well, what about this guy? He's pretty good looking. Nope, not him. What about this guy? He's pretty good looking. Nope, not him. Seven people. And God kept saying, nope, 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 nope. And then finally, the one nobody thought was even important enough to invite to the party. God said, that's the one. Sometimes that happens to us. You know, people look at us and go, well, I don't think they can do anything. But God says, I can see their heart. I know what they're capable of. I know how I can trust them. And I want them to be the one to do this job. So even if you're the smallest person, even if you're not the smartest person in the room, even if you're not the most wealthy person in the room, God has a specific job for you. And God has chosen you to do that job. Then you just know that God's God knows that you can do it and you have to trust that God knows what he's talking about. And so God will bless you even like he blessed David and David became the king. Wouldn't that be cool if God said to you, Lillian, that I want you to be in charge of something really important and you go, me, I'm just a little kid. And God said, no, but I know that I can trust you. I know that would be cool. Well, let's pray. God bless these kids. Even at this young age, Put your seal on them. Help them to know, God, that you have them. You, you love them. You care about them. You're even now calling them to the job that you have for them when they get older. And help them, Father, to grow into whatever it is that you want them to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, you guys can go back to your class. See you guys later. Well, how many of you folks have noticed the new lights? Anybody? Look up. We have new lights in our sanctuary. They're not all in. We all we, we hope to get them all in in one day, but that didn't happen. But I want to explain to you guys a little bit about what's going on and what it is. These these are the new light fixtures. It's a very simple, simple, simple thing. And it has three wires, a yellow one, a black one and a white one. And then there's this piece of cardboard, which 
we thought was very important, but we found out it's not. The instructions say it's very important, but Miss Charlene and I learned it's just a waste of our time. This bracket, though, is very important. Now, one of the things you have to do is you have to take the old fixture down. When you take the old fixture down, you find that there's a box in there that the wires are coming through. And in that box, there is a hole that a screw goes in. And then the screw goes through this bracket. You turn it slightly, then you tighten it up. And now this bracket is sitting up against the ceiling. And you see the tabs, the little square tabs on either side? Well, there's a corresponding tab here. So it's like this. And then the wires come through it. And then we put the tab in and then turn it. And that's what locks it into place. Now you would think that this would be a very simple process. You get a, you get a 63 year old fat man on top of a ladder and you tell him to hold this at the top of the ladder and get the white wire wrapped around the white wire that's sticking out of the ceiling and then you get a wire nut on it and then wrap some electrical tape on it and that's one wire. Then you gotta do the black wire. And then because this building is so old, they didn't do grounds. So this wire just kind of sits there. And then, oh, I forgot to tell you, there's a little switch on the back of this light. It has one, two, three, four, five choices of color. Okay, so depending on where you click the switch, you can get a yellow or an orange or a white or a gray or a blue. Now, when I say blue, it's actually a white, but it's a very bluish white, right? But you don't know what you have until you turn on the electricity. Well, it's labeled. No, what I learned was the label doesn't necessarily match up perfectly with where the click is. So you click, putting at the level you want. You get on the top of the ladder. Well, first of all, you have to get somebody else who is more dexterous and able to stand up on the ladder and do the taking down of the old 40-year-old fixture. Then you get the fat old man up there to wire it up, click it in, and then he stands there and yells, turn on the circuit breaker. And someone downstairs turns on the circuit breaker. Why? Because you can't know if you got it all right until there's power. But you can't do it with the power on. So then I had the other two helpers look at the lights and say, is it the same color shade as all the rest that we just put up? One time it wasn't, but the rest of the time it was. One time, put it all up, turn it on, nothing happened. Why? Because this stupid thing, when you go to put the wire nut on, the copper wire slid off the other copper wire. <sighs> then you take it all apart. The whole time you're up on the ladder balancing. It was so fun. It was so fun. And we're going to pay somebody next time. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Have you ever done any crocheting or knitting ever? Anybody? What happens if you drop a stitch? <laughs> Same thing, but you're on top of a ladder. If you don't get the wires connected properly and somebody turns on the power and the light doesn't come on, you got to take it all down again and start all over. If you click the wrong switch 
because the label doesn't match perfectly and now you have a blue light instead of a golden light or an orange light instead of a golden light, you have to take it all down again and start all over. That's what God was doing in today's Bible study that we're going to be looking at. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Now, I spent a lot of time reading and studying and praying over because there's gobs of stuff in this chapter. And I wish that we could cover it all in the amount of time that we have. We can't. That being the case, I've had to pick and choose. So I started thinking about what was in here, first of all. Then I had to process through things and pull out stuff that, not that it wasn't important, but I only have so many minutes to to speak to you and I can't cover it all in that amount of time. So the very first thing I thought about, well, who are the characters in this story? Now, again, this chapter is, I don't know that this is an actual timeline or if this was just Jesus talking and then Matthew pulled up various segments. But the very first 14 verses is indeed a timeline. And that's what we're going to look at mainly this morning, the first 14 verses. And in those first 14, we are going to look a little bit farther in just a second, but the first 14 verses is the gist of what we're going to be looking at. And who are the main players in these 14 verses? Well, first of all, there's Jesus. And secondly, there are the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders of the Jewish community. And then there are the disciples, Jesus's followers. Now, do we know how many there are? Not really. We do know that there were at least 12 because we already, he's already identified the 12 apostles, but there are women who followed along as well. They aren't included in that number 12. And if you read in the book of Luke, there was 72 disciples that he sent out. So it could be that there's 50 to 100 people standing here. We don't really know at this point. All we're told is his disciples are here. But there's, there's three groups if there's, if you will. There's Jesus, the leader, the rabbi. There's the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the community, and there's Jesus' disciples. Now, think about this. When, back then, I mean, today, if I was told to write a story out, it's very simple. I grab a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen and I start writing. Or if you're me and I don't use paper, I use my computer and I type it all out. And then I print it out. And if I make a mistake, guess what? I just... Just tear up and print out another sheet. If I forget a word because I dropped a stitch, then I just go back and edit and cut it and paste it and print it out again. It's not that big of a deal. When Matthew was recording the gospel, it was a big deal. You didn't just cut and paste. You didn't just start over again. It was an expensive proposition to put ink to paper or ink to scroll, ink to parchment, whatever it was, vellum. So the bottom line is, Why were these words specifically chosen? It was expensive. It was important. It had to be thought through. There had to be an order. He didn't just randomly sit down and start journaling. There was purpose and intent as he was writing this. So what was it and why was it? Who is it for? We know who the art, the characters are in the story. There's Jesus, the Pharisees and the disciples. But who was this written to? They experienced it. They didn't need to reread it. 
So it was being written for an audience outside of this group. And what was the purpose of the writing? And when I first started reading it, honestly, I was like, blah, 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 yakety schmacky. The Pharisees are mad at Jesus. Jesus shows them off, shows them how they're stupid. And all the disciples giggle and go, isn't Jesus smart? That's the end of the story. Let's go home. But that's not a reason that God would have had Matthew put these words on a vellum scroll so that thousands of years later, we could be reading these words. So there is something important in this passage that we need to read and understand for our own spiritual benefit, our own formation. And I want to try and examine some of that this morning. Craig, if you could bring up that very first or the second slide in this. We are so the, 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 the next one. The, the one behind it, the one, the first one. There you go. Sorry. Um, these are the four sections of the book of Matthew chapter 12 that we're going to be looking at. Verses 1 through 8, 9 through 14, 22 through 32, and 33 through 37. Okay, so that's a lot still. But we're not going it, it, it to... It can be done in, in the amount of time that we need. Okay, so that's the, those are the passages we're looking at. Go ahead and bring the next slide up, Greg. These are all of the related scripture passages that I want to touch on because these give you the understanding of what's going on in chapter 12, okay? Now, I put these in biblical order, okay? Exodus is the first of the books then of, of all of these listed, then Leviticus, then Numbers, then Deuteronomy, then... So those... Those, that's listed in biblical order. We're not going to be actually be looking at that in biblical order, but I wanted you to at least have that information. So Craig, just leave this screen up for the entire time that I'm preaching. Now when I'm done preaching, just bring up the devotional slide. All right, cool. All right. So chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the grain fields on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? It is the seventh day of the week set aside for rest. It is part of the Ten Commandments. When God initially gave the law through Moses to the people of Israel, God specifically said in the fourth commandment, keep the Sabbath holy. And they they then, the Jewish people then started chewing on that as they were developing their faith and, and, and learning. And the leaders of the Jewish community would have debates over what is it mean, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? Well, literally thousands of years from the time of Moses to the time of Jesus walking on the earth, thousands of years and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of religious people Chewing on what does it mean to keep the Sabbath holy? By the time Jesus arrives, the religious leaders have 39 sections of rules about how to keep the Sabbath holy. Not 39 rules, 39 sections in a book on how to keep the Sabbath holy. God simply said, honor me by keeping the Sabbath. And we said, well, to do that, we have to not this, not that, not this, not that, not this, not this, not this, not that. 
how am I supposed to remember? Well, just talk to your rabbi. He'll have all the answers. Literally. Now, these Pharisees, and again, I'm not trying to make light of this because this is important. God would not have had this included in the gospel if it wasn't important. But what are these Pharisees doing walking through a grain field with Jesus and his disciples on the Sabbath? I see them as little gnats flying around Jesus' nose and ears. <laughs> getting up in his business, trying to cause problems. That's my perception. But think about this. I'm your pastor. My job as your pastor is the spiritual care and formation of each one of you. My job before God is to make sure that you are fed the truth. My job before God is to guard against wolves in sheep's clothing who would come into this flock and try to bring harm or steal or kill or destroy. And my job before God is to help and help you to come to an understanding of what the truth is. So the Pharisees, from my perspective, are these irritating little always getting into Jesus' business. But from their perspective, they are trying to honor the calling that's on their life. They are trying to live out holiness to the best of their ability and understanding. So this isn't just this glib little thing and Jesus going, go, get away from me, you little bug. There's some serious stuff going on here. And Jesus is trying to train up a new generation in a new thing. Now, somebody this week asked me, Pastor, have you ever heard of this deconstruction thing? And I said, yes, I have. And for those of you who don't know what it is, we don't need to go into it this morning. It's way too much. But understand that one of the things that happens in deconstruction is you pull out the rows of knitting until you get to where the mistake was. And then you re-knit that piece of garment or clothing or cloth or whatever it is with no longer having that mistake, that issue. Otherwise, you end up with a weakness or you end up with a deformity that affects the rest of the garment or the piece of cloth. There's an, there is an art piece, and I looked it up online, but I couldn't figure out where it was at. Otherwise, I'd point you to it. There was an art piece where an artist took thousands of red hand-formed bricks and formed a brick wall, freestanding brick wall, for an art display. But underneath one small section of the brick wall, they placed a book. It was a philosophy book. The artist's perspective, the artist's intent of message was that this one thing can disrupt all of this. And you can see where the book is causing a bump. And so the normal straight lines where the mortar would have been, there's this deformity in the brick wall. Ultimately, it comes back to almost being perfect at the top. But it's 
it, there is a, an effect that happens. Now, his message is totally different from my message, so I'm not going to go there. But there's this visual thing that you can think of. There's a knot in the thread. There's a bump in the mortar. There's a deformity where it didn't get seated properly. There's a copper wire in the light fixture and the ceiling that when they were putting the wire nut on, it slid down and came out of connection with the other wire. Therefore, there's no electricity. Therefore, when they turn on the circuit breaker, the light fixture doesn't illuminate. Or somebody clicks a click on the back trying to adjust the color properly and misses a notch. So all of them are a nice amber glow except for the one that's blue. Still provides light. But if you want it to be right, if you want it to be appropriate, if you want it to be the way it's supposed to be, you got to go back and fix what was wrong. Okay? So this is the challenge I see Jesus in right now in this passage of scripture. He's not only trying to do spiritual formation for these people who are new to the faith that he's imparting to them. But he also has to deconstruct some of the bad stuff that they've been brought up under the leaders who think they're living holy lives. And this is a view that we get to see a master Doing the right thing by all the people. And so I want to look at the words and then talk a little bit about some of the background and then we'll see if we can come to a safe and happy conclusion. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields of the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But the Pharisees saw it and they said to Jesus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Stop. Exodus chapter 31. Look at the screen up above. Exodus chapter 31 says, Keep the Sabbath holy. Everyone, hear these words. Everyone who profanes the Sabbath shall be put to death. This is the word of God. Exodus chapter 31. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Those are the words that God gave to Moses from the Mount Sinai that was written and given to the people of Israel thousands of years before Jesus is walking through a grain field with his disciples. So the Pharisees have this in their mind. Do not profane the Sabbath. And they're saying to Jesus, your disciples are profaning the Sabbath. And so in their mind, this is a big deal. Now, if you look at... <clears throat> um, Excuse me. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, the, the, the law of Moses says, if you go into your neighbor's field where there is standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you may not put a sickle into your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, they're living in an agrarian society. You're walking around on a hike. You're hungry. There's a standing field of, of wheat. You're allowed to go over there and pluck a couple heads of wheat off and get the seeds and eat them while you continue your hike. No harm, no foul. You're not harming anybody. You're not stealing. This is permitted by the law. You're not allowed to grab a hunk of it and use a sickle because then you're harvesting. 
Okay? So now let's go back to Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees say, your disciples are not, are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And they're saying they're harvesting. Why? The law says it's okay. The law doesn't say I'm not harvesting. I did, they didn't use a sickle. Because those 39 sections of man-made rules about how to keep the holy, how to keep the Sabbath holy say you cannot winnow, you cannot uh, blow the chaff off, you cannot, because that's harvesting. And harvesting profanes the Sabbath. The law doesn't say that. The man-made rules about how to live a holy life say that. But the Pharisees, trying to keep their community safe from any bad teaching, are working from the premise that this is the right way to live. And so they confront the teacher who's allowing their people to do the wrong thing. And they say, your people are profaning the Sabbath. And Jesus says to them, verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? <clears throat> Now, let me go back. Let me go to that. It's first Samuel chapter 21. David, King David, who we know from what I told the kids earlier, has the heart of God. God has loves him. He knows that David has a heart before God, a good heart. David comes to the to the priest, Ahimelech. And Ahimelech says to David, what are you here for? What are you here for? And he says, I'm out on a matter that's very urgent. Now, the history of this, the background of this is that Saul is trying to kill David and Jonathan has just confirmed that Saul's trying to kill David and David is away with some of his guys trying to get away for his life. And he comes to him, to this priest, and he says, do you have any food? We're on a mission. We're out of, we're, we, 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 we're running out of food. We need something to eat. My guys are hungry. And the priest said, look, I don't have anything. The only thing I've got is, is the holy bread. I have no common bread that I can share with you. Just the holy bread. And David said, Give it to us. Well, what is that holy bread thing? If you go to... Um, there it is. At Leviticus 24, it says, verses 5 through 9, I'm not going to read all of it. It says that there's a, there's a, a rule in the, in the law that says that the priests have to put loaves of bread out on the table every Sabbath day. So they take off the week old bread. They put the fresh loaves up every single Sabbath day. David is saying, give us the bread you just took down. But if you read Leviticus 24 verses 5 through 9, it says that food is set aside only for Aaron and his sons, only for the priests. And they have to eat it in a holy place. And David says to Ahimelech, You've got bread. My people are hungry. We need to eat. And Hamlet says, I want to help, but the law says. And David says, I got to feed my guys. And Hamlet says, okay, listen, they, they can't have had sex with anybody in recent days. No, they haven't had sex with anybody in recent days. We're on a mission. Okay, so, so they're clean. They're in a good stead. They're right. They're righteous. They're holy. Yes. Okay, they can have that bread. Oh, so here's a priest who's thinking outside of the box, trying to meet the need of the of the of the day that's presented to him without violating the law, and that's what Jesus refers back to now in Matthew chapter twelve. 
He says to the Pharisees, have you read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how they entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests of the temple profane the Sabbath by doing work? They bake bread. They put new bread on the shelf. They take the old bread off and store it away. Isn't that work? How come you're not calling them down? See, it's okay to do certain things on the Sabbath. It's okay because you have the right standing before God to do it. Because you have the authority to do it. And David, if you want to process this, was royal. He had an authority from the king. At least Ahimelech thought that was the case. And so using that authority, he went and said, give me the bread. And the priest went, okay. And Jesus is saying, you don't even understand what's going on here. You're coming to me with these man-made rules about keeping the Sabbath holy. I'm the guy who made Sabbath. And he says to them that. Look at verse 6. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Well, what is that something? It's the Messiah, the Son of God, God in flesh. Verse 7, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. These guys are hungry. They need to eat. The law says they can take some grain out of the field as long as they don't use a knife. So get off your high horse. Well, it's the Sabbath. They can't. They're not allowed to because our rules. Now let's move into the next section. See, it's that's why I said it's way too long <laughs> for us to cover the entire chapter. Verses 9 through 14. It says, Jesus went from there and entered their synagogue. Whose synagogue? The Pharisees' synagogue. It was like, he met me out in the field. He said, oh, by the way, I'm going to be at your church on Sunday. You're what? Yeah, I'm coming to your church, son. I want to see how church goes at your church. Great. So I got this wolf in sheep's clothing coming to my church service now. <clears throat> so it says, he went from there, entered the synagogue. And verse 10, a man was in the, sab- in the synagogue who had a withered hand. And the Pharisees asked Jesus, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they say he did it. They did it so that they could accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out of much more value as a man than a sheep. So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, let me quickly take you. Verse Deuteronomy 22, 4 says, you shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. That's the law of Moses. The verse just before that, which I didn't read to you, says, if you see somebody's animal astray, 
It is your responsibility to get a hold of that animal and care for it until you can bring it back into its rightful ownership. Bring it back to its rightful owner. And if you don't do this, you are sinning. So the word of God clearly says, if you're walking down the street on the Sabbath and you see an animal fall into a pit, you have an obligation under the law to help the animal. And Jesus uses that to his advantage here. He said, you're fussing at me because I want to help some guy who can't work because his hands all shriveled up. You hypocrites, don't you? you, What does the law say? The law says, help a sheep. Isn't this guy worth more than a sheep? And then he just ignores them and turns to the guy and says, stretch out your hand. And the guy stretches out his arm and it says when he does, the hand is just instantly healed. Now, what happens in that synagogue when that happens? Verse 13. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against Jesus on how to destroy him. Now, can you imagine Pastor Elsie has endometrial cancer? Jesus comes into our service and says to her, I declare you healed. We would go, or imagine Dennis in here with his broken femur and Jesus says, stretch out your leg. Instantly it's healed. We'd be like, but this guy sitting behind the pulpit's going, he's of the devil. He has no business in my church. I need to get rid of him. That's exactly what's happening here. If you go now to chapter 12, excuse me, verses 22 all the way through to 37. We don't really have a lot of time to to just continue reading it word word by word by word, but I want to at least cover it. It says in verse 22, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute and was brought to Jesus and Jesus healed him so that the man could speak and could see. All the people were amazed. They started saying, could this be the son of David talking about being the Messiah? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is by the prince of demons that he's casting out demons. And Jesus turns to them knowing what they're saying and says, it ain't possible, folks. A house divided against itself will not stand. You cannot say Satan is casting out Satan. It don't work like that. And by the way, don't your disciples cast out demons? If that's true, who are they casting it out? What what power are they using to cast out demons? Isn't it possible that God in your day and time can cast out demons? If it can, then I can. And let me tell you, I can. And then if you go... Down to verse um, 33, Jesus then says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of snakes. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good that's treasure that brings forth good. But the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. 
This is Jesus talking to these leaders who are calling him out, saying he's doing this by the power of the devil. And he's saying, you don't understand. You think you're living holy and righteous and pure lives, but you need to understand something, guys. What's coming out of your mouth is what's in your heart. And what's in your heart is not holy. Because why are you trying to kill me and destroy me? Because I'm doing God's thing. Why? Because I'm rocking the boat. I'm changing things and you don't like it. I'm making you face things that you don't like. I'm causing you to have to pull out the knitting to get down to where you miss the stitch. So that you can fix it and have a good piece of cloth. So that you can have a good garment that will last for a long time. That's what I'm doing here. And you're calling me of the devil? Well, let's back up. I skipped over it intentionally. Let's back up to that talk about the mute deaf guy that got healed. Look at verse 27. Jesus talking. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, which is one of the princes of the demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they they will be your judges. But if by the spirit of God, I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not, listen to this, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. That's a scary thought. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is calling God's work evil. It is saying that's of the devil. And Jesus is saying, you can call me any name you want. You can make fun of my ministry, but heaven help you. Heaven help you if you continue this path because you are going to be called to account and there is no forgiveness if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Now, help me to, under, help me to process this through a little bit, okay? If God is a loving God and God wants to have relationship with every human being and God is able to forgive any and all sins, why wouldn't God forgive that one sin? And I would submit to you, it's not that God won't forgive that one sin. It's that you are rejecting the only chance that you have to have that sin forgiven because the only hope for having your sin forgiven is to confess and repent of the sin and ask God to heal you and cleanse you and you're rejecting God. If you say, I will not submit, I will not believe, I will not go there. And God is saying, this is the path. I refuse. I don't like your words. I don't like the way you present. I don't like what you're doing. That's okay. You don't have to like it, but this is the path. You don't go this way. There is no hope. You reject the only hope you have. I can't help you. So what's happening here and what has been passed down for thousands of years for us to be able to examine is Jesus is confronting false teaching 
Jesus is forming the, the spiritual uh, foundation for his disciples who are then going to be challenged to bring this new thing to the entire world. And he's got to do it in a way that's honoring and brings glory to God and doesn't in any way negate who he is as God in flesh. Which is why I can't continue with this idea that Jesus is going, get away from me, you little nuts. Because I see he has to have compassion over these people. He has to. He cares desperately for their souls just as much as he does for his own disciples. But, and this is the last, the last verse that we're going to look at that's outside of Matthew. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 says, this is a prophecy from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant was that? That was the Sinai covenant. That was the time when Moses went up onto the mountain and got the Ten Commandments and brought down the law of Moses and taught them all about honoring the Sabbath and keep by keeping it holy and taught them about do not Lie, do not cheat, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Don't take the name of the Lord in vain. And then all of the other things about how the priests are supposed to have bread every on the Sabbath every week. And how, you know, you're allowed to, to, to pluck grains out of the field, but you can't sickle them on, you know, all of this stuff. Jesus, Je, Je, Jeremiah is saying, when I took them by the hand out of, by talk, took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbors saying, learn how to know the Lord because they're going to know me. From the least of them to the greatest that cares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. And it's not said in this prophecy that Jeremiah wrote, but I will be with them, in them, guiding them into all truth. That's what Jesus said to his disciples towards the end of his ministry. I'm going back to the Father. He is sending to you a paraclete, a helper, the comforter who will be with you always, the Holy Spirit of God. But you can't have him if you reject him. You can't have relationship if you reject him. You can't have cleansing if you reject him. This is a new thing. It's changing the way you've done church. You think you got it right and you've been faithful to follow all of the rules. The challenge is all of the rules came from the man, from the mouth of man and the heart of man, not from the father. So you may need to go back and pull some stitching out to get to where you made the mistake and you got off track a little bit to go back and fix it. But the whole point is, and look at the, look at the, uh, the, the image on the screen. But bring up that last screen, the last one, the, the one that says out of the heart. The word of God, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34 says, out of the heart flows. The life, the strength, the vitality, the ministry, the representation of Christ to the world, all of it comes from our heart. 
And if the heart is right before God, then it's all going to be beautiful and glorious. But if the heart is evil, what did Jesus say? You can't get good fruit off of an evil tree. You just can't. So what does that mean? I'm going to yell, turn on the power. And we're going to see which ones of you look most like Jesus and which one of you look most like the devil. Oh, I didn't mean that. Did I really mean that? Do you see what I'm saying? Wouldn't it be scary if that's indeed what happened? If on a Sunday morning you came to church and God said, okay, Holy Spirit power. And you all started glowing a certain color and we could see which ones weren't the right shade. How would that be fixed? You'd have to go back and take the fixture off the ceiling and click the switch until it got to the right way. Then reconnect it all and put it back up. That's what God the Holy Spirit does. It's called sanctification. There's initial sanctification. When you first get your sins all taken care of by God. You confess and repent and he cleanses you and cleanses you and makes you all clean and right and holy. But then there's also this, I want to be like Jesus, but I'm not like Jesus because there's this thing about me that always wants to go my way, but I really want it. And God can fix that too by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. But sometimes it means take the fixture down off the wall, redo the the wire nuts, pull out the stitching, let the Holy Spirit of God stitch up the right area so that it's right this time. Do y'all get it? Are you hearing it? And all of that's being done by God, not by you. See, you can't take yourself down off the ceiling. You can't unscrew the wire nuts that are connecting you to God. You can't pull out the threads. That's something the Holy Spirit has to do. But you have to submit. Because if you refuse to submit, you become a brood of, a member of the brood of vipers. <laughs> and the end result is, You are lost. Isn't that a fun story? 37 verses, chapter 12. Powerful, powerful lesson. That's why Matthew felt impressed by the Holy Spirit of God to put this here. Because there's a lot there for us to to digest. Now, your job now is to go home and meditate on all of this and think about it and say, God, where am I in all of this? What, what, why did the pastor have to say that in my presence? Why did you want me to hear this? I don't know. Maybe because you got to pray for me because I got it all wrong. I don't know. But if you'll take the time to listen, he will speak to you. If there is an area that needs redoing or rewiring or pulling out, he'll do that if you allow him. And you'll be better for it. And maybe, maybe... The whole reason you were here today was because you need to share what I just said with somebody else and God needed to put it in you so that you could speak it to somebody else next Thursday at lunch or whatever. Let's pray. Father God, I am encouraged by the fact that I trust that your spirit guided this whole thing. I trust, God, that you have a reason for the people who are hearing these words to be here hearing these words. And I ask, God, that you would now help them to hear from you 
and to act accordingly, whatever that means, however that plays out. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our youth have not returned. That means they're in great, great uh, stead with the, with the word of God right now. So I'm going to read the scripture. If you could bring it up, Craig. I have no idea what it is. Mark chapter 3. Verses 31 through 35. Is that what it says? Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at about and looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's a powerful statement. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Should I stomp on the floor to let the kids, the teens know that we're done? <laughs> we're way past our normal time. I don't know if you can see this or not, but there are piercings on this bread. And I believe it's the prophet Isaiah said, by his wounds, he was pierced for our transgressions and by his wounds we are healed. Thank you, God. Thank you. On the night that Jesus spent with his friends, the last meal that he had to share on this earth, At the middle of the meal, he held up a piece of bread, looked at his friends and said, this is my body, which is for you. And he broke the bread and passed it out. And he said, take this, all of you, eat it. Later on in that same evening, he held up a cup, looked at his friends and said, this is my life, my blood, which is shed for you. Take this, drink it, all of you. As often as you have opportunity... Eat and drink and remember. The time is coming when we will eat in the, around my father's table in heaven. But for now, this is my last chance to sit down with you guys. But I want you to get together in the future and just do this in remembrance. And in anticipation. Someday, we will be at my father's table. But until that time, at least remember. So Father God... In obedience to your word, in obedience to the command of Christ, we are, we are partaking of bread and drink and remembering your love for us. We ask God that you would bless this. We ask that you would nourish our bodies with this. And we ask, Father, that you would nourish our souls with your presence. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Come when you're ready.
Pray with me. Father God, we are so thankful, A, that we were able to be here today, and B, that you were here with us. We ask now that you would go with us, Father. Help us to be very aware of your presence. Help us, Father, to carry this truth with us as we go and give us opportunity to shine the light of Christ to someone in our community this week. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each one of you. Go in his peace.